0: And so this morning we're going to talk about the holiness of God. I'm going to continue in uh, my little series that is really just helping me get through uh, a class at Reformed Bible College uh, on the attributes of God. And so uh, this will help me with my final paper that has to be 18 pages on God's attributes and how you teach them to uh, select group of people. And so here we are. So let's pray as we get started. Uh, Father, we come to you knowing that you are holy, you are perfect, you are good, and there is no one like you. And we are not worthy to receive your grace, to receive your mercy, to know you, to see you, uh, to receive your Holy Spirit, to have our sins forgiven. Lord, we deserve none of it, and you give it all out of your goodness. Help us to understand your holiness to grow closer in your word, pour out your Holy Spirit on us this morning, please, through Jesus Christ, amen. So I promised John Gray I would pull in a uh, Palm Sunday Holy Week theme into this, and then I was getting ready and forgot about it. And so, but there really isn't any better attribute to study at the beginning of Holy Week than God's holiness, Uh, and that's not just a play on words, but, and so, and so, um, if there was one attribute, I would say that would be, you know, in my own kind of arbitrary way of thinking, and I've heard many other people say this arbitrarily. So it must therefore give some credence to truth. Uh, that's not a that's a logical fallacy. So take that as it is. Is is God's? You know, the one attribute that's worth really diving into is God's holiness, and so. And what that means, um, and we'll get into that a little bit. And so, uh, uh, as we get in today, and one of the reasons why God's holiness is so, um, maybe in my view, is is so special. Because holiness just means to be set apart, to be different. That's why we have holidays. Those are holy days. Those are special days that are not like other days that are set apart. Holidays is just a, a holy day. Right, and so holiness is—it means to be set apart specifically from the common for special use. And so, many times in Scripture, uh, we're called saints or called holy ones, which is which is comes from the uh, the word the Hebrew and the Greek word uh, for holy or to be set apart. So we're called to be holy, and so we would have to understand what that means is being distinct from from what. God's called holy. The third person of the Trinity is called the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ is called the Holy One. Jesus Christ constantly prays and exalts the Father as holy. And so to understand that in this attribute uh, would be largely important. Because we can't really understand our holiness unless we understand God's holiness. And so... um, the difference, the, when we say that God is holy, is, or he is distinct, or he is separate, it means in every way. It means that there is nobody like him. And when he calls himself holy, it means we don't really have anything to compare God to. Oftentimes we see there's analogous language used in Scripture to point to a distinct attribute or something, or to make a point about God. But that analogy, all analogies break down because if analogy was true, it would just be an equivocation, and then it would be the same thing, and then you wouldn't need an analogy. <laughs> so analogies God often uses those in Scripture not to say that, um, uh, not to say that he is something, but it's to point out an attribute about him so that we can understand it in a humanly way. <clears throat> and usually that is um, is, is, is uh, to set him apart. And so, our scripture for today, we're going to look at Leviticus 19.2, that's going to be our primary text, where it simply says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so, right after that verse, Moses reiterates the fourth commandment, the third commandment, and the second commandment. And so, specifically when we're talking about God's holiness, we're talking about his perfection, his moral perfection, his righteousness, that everything in him is set apart perfectly, and that there's nobody like him. And so likewise, in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, Peter quotes directly in 16 from Leviticus 19.2, but he qualifies it by saying, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so when we're called to be holy, it's almost always has to do with a moral character or a moral uh, standing, that we're, we're called to be holy and separate from the world in this specific way, in obeying the law, obeying God's law. And we'll get into that in a more practical sense. But, um, and so God's holiness is is mostly what we're talking about is his moral character, his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection. And so before we get into our calling, when we're, when we like to go to Leviticus nineteen two and first Peter sixteen and it says, You shall be holy, and it says that the, so then we go and try to be holy. But he says, For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we are to reflect the Lord's holiness. And so without knowing what holiness is to the Lord and what his character is, then we can't reflect that. We would inevitably get to our own ideas of holiness, like, you know, just don't smoke and don't drink and don't hang out with those uh you know, biker gang people or whoever your mom wants you to stay away from. Uh, you know, we think of that way, but it's always putting in in man's <clears throat> man's law instead of God's law. And so the only way we can actually progress in sanctification and in holiness is getting closer to the one that is holy. And so that's what we want to look like. That's what we want to look like. That's what we want to study today. And so if we don't grasp holiness from God's perspective, if we don't grow closer to him, we will never grow in holiness. It's just impossible. You'll, you won't just wander into being holy and separate and obeying the law of God and and, uh, and sanctification and just lackadaisically and, uh, and just, oh yeah, I just woke up this morning and I just had a pure heart and I loved everybody and I started obeying God and I love the community, and I wasn't. I honored my parents, and I didn't murder anybody in my heart. And I just woke up that way. That, that doesn't happen. You can only get. You can only reflect God's holiness by, by reflecting God, right? By growing closer. You have to know what you uh, are reflecting. And so Isaiah 40:25 says, "To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Like a man says the Holy One." And so God right off the bat says his distinction, I'm the holy one. Are you going to compare me to a man? Am I like man that you're going to wonder, you're going to start comparing me? And so we get into what, when we get in as Christians, we start getting into the trouble and thinking of, we start uh, lessening the gap between God and man. We start comparing God to man. We either bring him down lower or we exalt ourselves up higher. And so, in the next verse, in the next verse in Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah goes on to say that lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out the hosts by numbers, calling them by name. And so, this specific distinction is the creator creation distinction. And so, oftentimes uh, in scripture, when God's calling himself holy, he then says, Why are you comparing me to something that's not holy? Why are you comparing me to a man? Do you see the stars? You see the moon. You see the sun. Who created them? Do you know them by name? Do you know all of them? Those ones we haven't even found out yet. Do you know where they're at? No, I do," says God. And so we dissolve that distinction. And when we bring God down to the to the earthly level, and we start to, or when we start to exalt humans, us as just, um, you know, just as exalted deities. We do that all the time. Uh, Hosea 11.9 gives a great example of how we would do that. Uh, It says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, and I am not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. And so God's not driven by his passions. He's not driven by emotions. He says, you guys... You guys are going to act out in your anger. You're going to, you feel this emotion. You feel anger, and you're going to act on it. You feel joy. You're going to act on it. God's not changeable. He's not driven by his passions. He's constant. He's steady. He isn't like a wave, you know, like a ship in the ocean tossed back and forth, um, you know, by the waves, by the wind. He says if he's going to do something, he's going to do it, right? He's not going to act in his wrath. He's not like a man who is... Uh, when someone sins against me, my first reaction is anger. Uh, and usually that anger then comes out verbally. And then after that uh, comes the altercation, if they're close enough to hear me. Um, Proverbs talks extensively about that. And so God's not like a man that he acts out of his anger. He acts out of his covenant. He acts out of his goodness. He acts out of his mercy, out of his justice. He acts out of who he is. And so we do that all the time, when we, and that's when we get into trouble when we start dissolving the creator-creature distinction and we start thinking of God like an exalted man, that he's just the, the big guy in the sky, right? We hear that, you guys hear that from people out there? Like the big guy in the sky. Well, he's not the big guy in the sky. He's not like a guy just in the sky, right? Uh, he's holy. And so that the, the theme of God's holiness is so prevalent throughout Scripture, it's hard to get away from it. Uh, even Mary in her Magnificat says... This is Luke one forty nine, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And so Mary in this prophetic exalting of praise says that his name is holy, not that just his name is set apart, but like we know people by their name. Um, if you haven't ever done a study of your name, figure out what it means. Uh, sometimes it's, it's often prophetic. And so we do that all the time. Uh, I've got a seven-year-old girl, most people you know, Lily. And so most seven-year-old girl, girls are uh, scared of legitimate things, and she's a little bit more timid. And so Leopold, Leopold, my last name, literally means a brave people. And so when she's scared, we always talk about being brave, and that's who we are because that's our name, and that's what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be defined as. Uh, now, if we had a less honorable name, we might think about changing that a little bit and <laughs> to something more godly. But... But we use that quite a bit it's like we are the leopolds we are a brave people that's who we're going to be and so um, in mary's exaltation of you know knowing that she's going to have the anointed one the lord jesus christ uh birthed through her she exalts god and says his name is holy that is who he is he is the that is the distinction about who god is he is holy he is separate there is nobody like him and so there's several ways that god reveals his holiness but really the only one I want to get into this morning uh, is that the law of God reveals his holiness. And so that specifically comes into play when we talk, we'll talk maybe a little bit later about sanctification. Um, But you can't be sanctified apart from the law of God. You can't be sanctified apart from God's moral code. And so the law comes out of God's character. These aren't arbitrary rules. He said, well, I saw people were murdering, so I'm just going to add murder in there. He, from before the foundations of the world, uh, out of his character, he, he understood and, and decreed that murder was bad. And so Paul says in Romans 7 that the commandment is holy, good, and just. And that the law is a shadow, later in Hebrews, uh, that the law is a shadow of what we can see the actual reality. And so the law is the shadow. What casts the shadow? It's the Lord, right? And so the Lord is the reality of the law. And so the true thing that's casting the shadow is, is God's character. He, he doesn't make these rules up. He doesn't make up the Ten Commandments. He doesn't make up the case laws that you find in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Exodus, uh, and some in Numbers, as like just arbitrary things for this time in history. He makes them out of his own moral, moral character. They had already existed. And so the summary of that is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You guys know this one. The Lord, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, and with all your might. <clears throat> and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so the law is love. The law comes out of God's love. And so the law teaches us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And so when we're talking about being holy and how God is holy, he's always acting, his law is even acting out of love. And so, um, I know from human experience, you guys might not experience this, I don't know, this might just be a one-off human experience, but sometimes I act out of anger. Sometimes it's not out of love. Sometimes I make people, kids, uh, follow the rules, and it's not because I'm doing it out of love, but it's out of frustration. God's not like that. He's not like a man that he's going to act out of, he's going to arbitrarily you know, make rules and have you stringently strict, stick to them because he's frustrated. He doesn't do that. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that, but, you know, maybe it's just an experience I have. But the law is love. To those who are regenerate, they say they love the law. And so the psalmist, one nineteen, Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So those who are born again have a natural inclination. The Lord's changed their nature, their spirit, to love the law. That they, they love obeying God. They love meditating on the law. They love thinking about it. Psalm 1 exalts that again the man who, is, who meditates on the law is like a, a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in and out of season and its leaf does not wither. He's, he's growing by meditating on the law. But to those who have not been regenerated, those who are not born again, we don't love, they don't love the law. They don't treat it as a, a lovely piece that they would uh, meditate on and, and see how we could use the law to love God and love other people. Usually, it's a means to an end. Usually, the law for uh, you see it in society is, um, you know, I don't know the... Uh, the mind behind everybody in government, and I'm no conspiracy theorist, but uh, it seems to me that speeding tickets help in two respects. Number one, it keeps people a little bit safer. Right, would everybody agree? I hope so. If uh, you say no and zoom out of here, we'll know that you don't agree. Uh, and two, it collects, collects money for the government. And uh, I don't like speeding tickets when I get them. I'm okay with other people getting them. but. But, right, it's a means, the law is a means to an end um, for unregenerate people, and that happens all the time. It's a means to, we do it in parenting all the time, we do it in our households, we do it with friends, where we assert rules because we want them to be a certain way, right? And that's not always for, uh, in, in good intentions, right? But God's law is a law of love. It's how you love God, and it's how you love your neighbor. And so... Uh, those who are unregenerate will always be strict and make up man-made rules, man-made laws. And so Paul says that the commandment itself is holy because it comes out of God's character and out of his essence because he is holiness, right? It's not, we don't think of when we studied God's simplicity that there's these attributes like love, like God is in his being who he is and then love is just like tacked on to him he is love. All of love, he is encompassed by love. Every decision he's ever made, everything he's ever done in history was done out of love. Everything, and we looked at the same thing where, the same thing with justice. He is justice. Everything he's ever done in history was out of his justice. And so holiness is the same thing. He is holy. It says that in Leviticus 19 too. So everything he does is out of his holiness, And so our holiness is to be patterned after the Lord's holiness. And so that's obviously emphasized in, in the law. And, but what I kind of want to transition into is, have we encountered God's holiness? And So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We'll just look at one or two examples of when people encounter the holiness of God. So Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so this is, um, some people might think this is a vision that uh, uh, Isaiah sees in the temple. It could be the physical temple. It could be a revelation of the heavenly temple, it doesn't really give that distinction. Uh, I prefer, for reasons, the, the latter. That he is, Isaiah is actually seeing into the heavenly court. Um, and, but So God has made creatures, these seraphims, with six wings. And he's equipped them to cover themselves. To shield themselves from the face of God. They're not bowing down, as far as we know. They're not open. They're not... Uh, Face to face, God created them with multiple wings so that they would shield themselves. We see the same thing with Moses when, in Exodus when he pleads God to see his glory. God, let me see your glory. God's like, Moses, you don't even know what you're asking. You, (laughs) Not quite. We're not going to do that. So what I'm going to do, God says, I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to put you in this cave in the cleft of a rock. And I'm going to pass by you, and you're just going to see the tail end of my garment. That's what you might be able to handle. If you're shielded, if you're hidden in the rock, then I'll show you just a glimpse of my glory. And what happens to Moses? His face shines like a, like a light bulb, and so much that when he goes to the, back to the Israelites, he has to wear a veil, right? Because God is so holy and perfect in his glory, what we're going to see with um, What Isaiah says here would just disintegrate us. So God creates these seraphim with wings specifically to shield them from God, right? And so uh, verse three, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so in the temple, we see that I think at least we see this glimpse of the heavenly courts and what are they singing? In Revelation 4, it says they don't stop singing day and night. Holy, holy, holy. And even I think in Revelation we see a little bit clearer glimpse where it's, it's like there's people on this side, and there's seraphim on this side, and they're singing back and forth, and that's the song they're singing. Holy, holy, holy. They're saying God is holy. He's separate. He's distinct. There is nobody like him for all eternity God has designed these creatures to to sing this song to them. And so we saw the same thing uh, in Revelation chapter 4. So this is the one attribute we see of God that is in the superlative repeated three times. We don't ever see that God is love, love, love. Or God is just, just, just. Or he is patient, patient, patient. The only time we see an attribute of God exalted to the third degree is holy, And so that is very special. And so usually when you repeat things in any type of literature, it's to emphasize a point, right? And so it's emphasizing, obviously, the holiness of God. And so what happens next? Verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so even... When It doesn't say that the foundation shook because of the singing, it doesn't say exactly why the foundation shook, but there's this, this, uh, this earthquake, this magnitude, and it's getting filled with smoke, it's getting filled with glory. Verse 5, and I, and I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips." My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what's Isaiah's response? It's fear. When he says, I am undone or I am lost, it means I am just like totally disintegrated from the bottom, like from the core of my being. And he invokes a, invokes a curse on himself. He says, woe is me. Why am I here? Why do I have to experience this? How am I going to survive? It's the same woe that Jesus prophesies to the Pharisees at the end of Holy Week when he, uh, when he condemns them. It's the same woe. It's the same, curse it is me because I am completely undone because I've come into the presence of the Holy God. That's what he experienced. He doesn't come in and say, hey, what's up, big guy? <laughs> He's <laughs> the natural response when he comes into the presence and the glory of God is, woe is me, I am completely undone. And so we see the same thing uh, in a couple other glimpses. In, ha- in Habakkuk, <clears throat> he says that his lips quivered. When he came into the presence of the Lord, his lips quivered. He was so fearful and so afraid that he just stood there and, and quivered. And so Isaiah says that he is unworthy to be in the presence of the one who they're singing about because he's a man of unclean lips. Just because he doesn't have good speech, he doesn't, his, his, he doesn't speak um, morally good all the time, right? It's not that he's just uh, not eloquent, but, but that he has said things uh, that are wrong. and And so... You know, when Christ says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, uh, you get a little bit more glimpse into maybe what Isaiah was leaning into. That, And he dwells in a people of unclean lips. And so with his lips, he's not even qualified to come into the presence of God because of a moral failing. And that's what's exalted in Isaiah when he comes into the midst of a holy God, is not that... Uh, the first thing that comes into his mind is, oh my gosh, I'm not worthy to be here. I should not be here. This is going to ruin me. This will not end well if I'm just going to stay here. Uh, And so this is what we call the fear of the Lord. And, um, uh, you know, Proverbs 1 talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And then the rest of Proverbs is a book about how to act in wisdom and comparing the wise man to the foolish man or the wise woman to the foolish woman. And biblically, wisdom and foolishness all has to do with morality. It has nothing to do with how smart you are or anything on that level. It just has to do uh, with your moral character. And so... Matthew 5.48 says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so Isaiah's response is, I'm not perfect. I shouldn't be here. I would need to be cleansed. I can't be here because of what I've said. And I'm sure that'd be the least of my troubles if I came into the presence of God in his heavenly court as <laughs> things I've said. Uh, I'm sure I got bigger troubles than that. And so, to the core of his being, he is just shook. He's, he doesn't know how to go on. And so, that's what would be normal. That's what we see over in Scripture. That's what we see in Revelation when John comes in uh, to the heavenly court. He falls down, um, prostrate, you know, and the angel tells him not to worship himself, not to worship the angel, and... Uh, and so that would be when you come into the presence. When you understand God's holiness, it should shake you to your core. That would be a normal experience. You wouldn't leave the same. You wouldn't leave the same man or the same woman. And Isaiah doesn't either, because his next. Uh, you see Isaiah is shaking in fear, and then um, I didn't have it in my scripture reading, but then he. You know, the, an angel, a seraphim brings, has to grab a hot coal with tongs. It's hot enough that the seraphim's not going to touch it. And he brings it to the lips of Isaiah to cleanse his lips. And soon after, when the Lord says um, about sending a message, and then Isaiah goes on to say, send me, right? His lips have been cleansed. He's going to produce a message from his lips that will be uh, uh, given by God. And so you're supposed, when you know you've encountered the holiness of God, if you leave changed. So over and over in scripture, we see things like in Matthew, um, Matthew 13, Luke 4, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 8 and, and Mark 4 of the parable of the sower where he sows the seeds. And you know three out of the four don't produce any fruit, but the one that does always produces fruit, either thirty or sixty or a hundredfold. And uh, we see the same thing uh, that we quoted out of first Peter one it says, "As obedient children do not be conformed to the former passions of your flesh, uh, but for and then he quotes Leviticus that for I am holy, the Lord is holy, so you should also be holy. And so you can't come into the presence of God, you can't come into his holiness without being changed, without being undone. The undoing is the beginning, and then the change happens after that. And so we're called, and the first part of of Leviticus is that you should be holy. We should be a holy, distinct people. We're called... um, If you were to just do a word study, which is sometimes good, throughout the scriptures of the word holy, you would be studying for a while because it happens a lot. The word comes up a lot. And so the overarching theme is that we're called to be a holy, distinct people. And so, mainly in scripture, what that distinction is, is between the church, the regenerate people of God, and the world. Jesus exalts that distinction over and over and over. In, in John 8, what does he call the Pharisees? What does he call the church people? What does he call the, the, the pastors? Sons of the devil, right? It wasn't because they were just in the church or in the synagogue, and they were just going about their way. It's because they weren't acting, they weren't thinking, and they weren't operating in a way that was separate. They were there's two distinctions. they're sons of the devil and they're sons of God. And they weren't acting like sons of God. It wasn't because he said that, uh, you know, there was something, I just saw something deep down in your heart and it wasn't, I know you're, you look like a good person, but I know there's something just deep down that's not quite right. He didn't say that. He said, you're acting like your father, the devil. You're imitating him. And because there was things, uh, as we get to the end of Holy Week, obviously they wanted to murder Christ but that their lives uh, reflected their father. Their, their lives did not reflect Christ. And so we're called to be a holy and distinct people. And so I brought out the law because the law is love, is because the way we look different from the world partly is based on God's law. And uh, we can't follow God's law unless we're born again. It would be impossible Jeremiah gives us the promise in the new covenant that he would write the law within us and that he would give us new hearts. And so when we're a holy and distinct people, it's a people who have been born again from from our Father who in heaven who is holy and we're reflecting his holiness. And so the way we uh, treat our spouses, the way we treat each other, the way we go to work, the way we handle school, the way we handle the rest of our family uh, would be separate and distinct. You know, if there's one thing uh, modernity, the modern times have have taught us is that, uh, you know, in in Christianity, in our thinking, we're trying not to abolish the creator-creature distinction. And in the world, we're just, what the world's doing right now is just trying to abolish every distinction between man and wife, between husband and wife, between, uh, between professor and student, between, in every institution, they are trying to abolish distinctions so that everybody is on the same playing field uh, in every way. And that certainly won't end, end well for the world. Uh, hasn't ended well in the past, won't end well in the future. And so, you know, our marriages should look different how we treat one another should look different. And we probably don't have time to belabor every point, but, you know, uh, on, a, on a personal note, I really like to keep friends uh, and that are outside of the church who are not Christians, not just so I can have someone to evangelize to and an outlet for evangelism, but, but so I could actually, sometimes it's good for me to experience how the world lives. And so, uh, Noel and I go on double dates, you know, with uh, some friends and of, of various backgrounds who aren't Christians. And uh, I remember one time they were they're amazed that like we go on a date night every week. And they're like, "Wow, you guys do that?" I'm like, "Yeah, of course we do. What else would we do?" <laughs> like, uh, it's not just because we've only been married a year uh, or less than a year. Uh, <laughs> it's like because the way we do family, the way we treat each other in marriage the world really should see that as different not just a theoretical we go to church and we do this and and too often times us in the church haven't done the work and understand what the world looks like and how we should look different and that's always going to come from studying God's word and we would know what to do in the law of God but we won't be empowered to do it without his spirit. We can't be the holy people of God unless he gives us the new heart. Unless, and the only way, you know, practically, uh, you can't make God do anything. But what happens with Isaiah? What happens with John? They come into the presence of God. They see his holiness and they're undone. The people of God are first undone before he puts into them and, and builds up. Every time, right? Uh, You see that with the apostles. You see that with like, hey, uh, this Jesus guy, we followed him for three years and then they killed him. Well, that stunk. Let's go back to fishing. Uh, And they're like, their whole lives were just, you know, they felt were wasted. And the whole lives were, you know, uh, not the whole lives, the last three years were wasted. They had looked forward for you know, uh, thousands of years to the promise of the Christ and they thought Jesus was him and then he died and they're like, it must not be him because their expectations were off. And, uh, it isn't until that Christ is resurrected that they're kind of shooken to the core and then they actually, uh, start operating out of Christ's commands and, and, uh, especially in the day of Pentecost, um. And so, those are serious commands. All throughout the New Testament and the epistles, specifically, we have commands that are around the idea or directly given towards being holy, being a holy, distinct people. And so, you have to ask yourself, am I really holy? Not, am I really perfect? Am I morally uh, uh, attained to higher than other people, but... One of the kind of litmus tests is if you're supposed to be a holy people separated from the world do i actually operate and am i actually separated from the world does if you're married does my marriage look different Uh, do you treat your family different Um, one thing that's trying to get abolished in our culture today is i talked with a, a gentleman recently about this is the the honoring of parents the honoring of the elderly we don't our culture doesn't really care about the elderly. If they're not useful to us now, right now what the American society is geared towards is those who are strong and productive and doing things are the ones who are important. But the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, uh, doesn't just apply to your father and mother. It's a cultural mandate for honoring the elderly, honoring because all life is important, whether it's the unborn in their womb or whether it's, it's the elderly. And so the world just throws that off. The world uh, marginalizes both of those and wants to kill them and get rid of them as fast as possible. And that's not how we operate. That's not what we would look like. So even if your family is not Christian, the way you treat them and the elderly should be different than the world. Uh, and there's, there's tons of different distinctions that the, the world is trying to abolish. And so... We're not going to have time to really get into any of those, but just laying the foundations of you really have to meditate on that and seek the Lord and ask yourself, am I normally, is my everyday life operating very distinct and separate as a shining light to the world? All right? Matthew 5, uh, 12 says that you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. Nobody lights a lamp Nobody lights a candle and puts it under a basket, but puts it on a stand so that everybody can see. And when they see your good works, they'll give uh, thanks to your Father who is in heaven. And so the one reason, the predominant reason why I know post-millennialism is true is because we are the shining light. And if we act like it, those, we always are going to be the shining light. Those who are regenerate, who apply the law of God, who have new hearts, who are holy and separate? We're always going to be the light. We're always going to be the beacon of hope. Isaiah two says that the law or the the world is going to stream to us because we have the law. We're going to solve their problems, and they're not going to do it because we have some theoretical philosophy that's going to help them. It's because it's real. They've seen something different, and you're not going to get there. You're not going to be holy unless you come into the presence of the Holy One, unless you're undone, shook to your core, and he changes you from there. He will put the law in your heart. And so, um, you know, as we go into into Holy Week, Christ is called the Holy One, the Anointed One, uh, and as he came into Jerusalem, he was what, from Genesis 3, the proclamation of the Christ, thousands of years later what all of Israel was looking for. From the beginning of Genesis it was prophesied that there would be one who is set apart who will crush the serpent's head and who will be bruised. And all of Israel was looking for him. Uh, and they most of them missed him. And so when they come in screaming and singing and laying down palm branches riding on a donkey fulfilling prophecy and says "Ho!" Glory to God, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is proclaiming that he is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who is set apart, who is distinct, who is anointed by the Father to carry out the mission. And so that's what we're looking forward to and and celebrating in Holy Week. And as we we come closer to Christ, you know, in Isaiah it says, uh, I see the Lord, Yahweh, and the Anointed One Sitting on the throne, and and Christ identifies himself over and over with the same uh, one, uh, opposed to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 9, and obviously he is the one seated on the throne in in Revelation, that he is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one that is coming uh, to save, to redeem, and to change. And the closer we get to him, uh, and he pours out his Spirit, and he brings us to the Father, the closer uh, we walk in sanctification and then the more light we are to the world. So, as we go into Holy Week, let us be holy. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us to write your law on our hearts. Bring us into your presence, Lord. Be with us in worship uh, this morning as we, as we worship you who sits on the throne, as the, as the seraphim sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord, for all eternity we will hear that song. Let us be shook to our core this morning and see your glory. Amen.